Well, one of the gifts of doing church in the afternoon, at least for a season, has been some flexibility on Sunday mornings. And so this morning, I was able to preach at a sister church of ours up in Alpharetta called The Parish. And uh, really exciting because they're a partner church. They're in the same diocese, which is a fancy Anglican word for a group of churches that are on mission together. And so it was great to just celebrate the diversity of our group of churches and what the Lord's doing and to be with them this morning. And in a similar vein, one of the things we celebrate today, and you'll get to hear in just a few moments, is the diversity of ways God's gifted us as a small, growing church plant with gifted voices who can preach and teach the word. You've heard over the past few months from Jonathan Good and Daryl Boyer, both members of our congregation. And today I get to introduce to you Lydia Foreman, who's also a member of the North Side and is going to speak today for us. Lydia is a graduate from Columbia Theological Seminary, is a pastoral intern with us this year. She's helped this fall with some community events, is going to help us a bunch in the spring as we prepare to move, especially in the area of a adult and youth formation. Really excited to share some of what she's been working on uh, for us in that area. And she's also an LSU fan, so she's having a really good weekend there. Um, Go easy on us. Yeah. Uh, So Lydia, come on up here and we'll pray for you and you can dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Lydia. Thank you for uh, her heart for you, her love for your word and the way in which you speak to us through it. Would you open our hearts now to hear From her, bless the time that she has spent preparing these words. We thank you for the gift that she offers to us in this sermon. And we lift her up and this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yes, good afternoon. As Tripp said, I'm Lydia Foreman, and I am super thrilled that today's text is coming from the Old Testament. So as he said, I went to school um, in seminary, and when I was in seminary, I focused a lot of my time in the Old Testament. And so it is very near and dear to my heart. I feel like it's an oft neglected, oft misunderstood, but very significant portion of our Bible. And uh, so I am just like, it's a real treat for me to be able to talk about uh, the book of Daniel today. Uh, Tripp set us up a little bit last week in chapter one, if you were here, um, and talked about the time in which it's set, which is the time of the Babylonian exile. And if both of those words mean nothing to you, basically all you really need to know is that uh, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah are split. Uh, Israel's no more, and now Judah is no more because King Nebuchadnezzar has invaded it and taken captive most of Israel's inhabitants and has taken them back to Babylon. Uh, So they're living in a foreign land under a foreign ruler with a foreign god. Um, And Daniel, of course, uh, and his friends are sort of the, the subject of the first six chapters or so of the book of Daniel. And it's about sort of how to live out your life and your faith faithfully um, in those hard circumstances um, under a foreign ruler and with weird gods that you're not supposed to be worshiping. So what does that look like? And that's kind of like the sort of general theme of the first six chapters of Daniel. Um, And then today, of course, uh, from chapter three is about the fiery furnace, which Daniel actually doesn't appear in that chapter. We don't really know where he is in that chapter, but um, as you heard several times, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who uh, are sort of the stars of this chapter. Uh, If we're honest, we probably haven't thought about Daniel in a while. And if we have, it's maybe even been with like children's Sunday school. Um, That's sort of what we tend to associate with uh, the book of Daniel because you've got great, you know, lions and things like that in there. Um, And in fact, it may not be, it may even be the case that the last time you've thought about 
Daniel was through Veggie Tales. If you're uh, a grandparent or a parent or a millennial who just was subjected to watching Veggie Tales growing up, uh, and there's a particular episode where they cover this uh, the story, and the characters are uh, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but bonus points if anybody remembers them. Rack, Shack, and Benny, much easier to say. And uh, I might just refer to them the rest of the time with that because it'll just save time. But uh, they refuse to bow down to a chocolate bunny. That's, that's sort of the, that version of that. So I commend that to you if you want to end your evening uh, with that. I'm sure it's on Netflix. Uh, but yeah, it makes sense that it's a popular children's story, right? Um, it's a very like tight narrative, a very clear good guys, Rack, Shack, and Benny, bad guys, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, there's a lot of repetition, as we all know, uh, you know, which is always good in kids' stories. It's like when you hear the sound of the harp and the lyre and the trigon, whatever that is, like, you know, it just, it sounds, it's like a good kid's story in a way. Um, and of course, it has a very neat and tidy conclusion. Um, you know, they are Shack, uh, you know, those guys, they don't bow down and worship uh, the statue. They're thrown into the furnace, but they're rescued and God delivers them. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge, acknowledges who the real God is and like the end. It's like very, it's pretty simplistic, right? Like, you know, maybe to the point that we've sort of dismissed it um, sort of offhandedly as like just a kid's story. Um, or at least when we try to give it like a grown-up interpretation of it, uh, it doesn't sound a whole lot more sophisticated um, than what you usually hear in like your average children's storybook Bible. So you've probably heard a version of that, or if you had to make one up on the spot, if you were if Gypsy just like grabbed you and said, "Okay, you got to teach Sunday school," it's Daniel or it's uh, Fiery Furnace give it go. You'd probably, and I probably would too, say something like, well, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were really faithful, even under threat of persecution, and we should emulate them as heroes of the faith. Like something like that, right? Like, and that's like not the worst interpretation. Um, we all need models for like courageous faith, um, even adults, right? Um, but there might be something else going on in the text. Um, And I would suggest that there's actually several hints that there's something else going on in the text that are given uh, leading up to chapter three, our, our uh, our text for today, that strongly suggests that the theme of this book as a whole is actually less about heroic examples of the faith, though Daniel and his friends can certainly be viewed that way, and more about God's faithfulness to his people throughout history. So perhaps we could read this chapter and most of Daniel less as a manual about how we should act and more as a testament to who God is. So that's what I would propose for today. So if you flip back, if you have your Bibles, if you flip back to the very beginning of the book in chapter one in the very first verse, we can start to see some of these hints, actually. So note how in verse one, the the author very carefully and intentionally words how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon takes the city of Jerusalem. So the first way he says it is, he came to Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged the city. But then in the next verse, he says, the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power. And in the Hebrew, it says something even more specifically than that. He says, the Lord gave it into his hand. It's like, 
what? Like, that's kind of weird. And then if you skip down to verse 9, the author explains that when Daniel is refusing to eat the court food because it would violate Jewish dietary laws, uh, it actually says God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. Like that's also like almost like bad grammar in a way. Like it's like two passives in a row. He allowed him to receive. It's like, that's kind of odd. And so this type of phrasing continues actually um, in the following chapter. So when Daniel uh, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, so if you haven't read it in a while, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says to his like court officials, hey, like I got, had this dream, but I need you to tell me what the dream was and you need to interpret it for me. Otherwise, I'm not going to listen to you. And nobody's able to do it um, except Daniel. But when Daniel says he can do it, he doesn't say like, I got this, like, let me, let me at it. He actually puts the spotlight away from himself and says, uh, well, actually, no, Nebuchadnezzar asks him, he says, can you do it? And Daniel says, well, no one can do it, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And yet he actually interprets the dreams. So he's like, he could do it, but he wants to take the spotlight off of himself and put it on God. So this is just a very conspicuous way to word things, um, especially this many times in a row. It's to start to like, hmm, maybe I should start paying attention to things here. And I think it's because it's serving a point. I think it's serving to the, uh, it's signaling to the reader to be on the lookout for a theological theme that's going to be important for the rest of the book. So there was, there's an example of this. I was recently watching um, an episode of The Office where uh, one of the characters, Andy Bernard, is in a local production of the musical Sweeney Todd, if you remember this episode. So the whole office goes to see Andy uh, perform in this. And when they're there, before the play starts, uh, as in a musical, as it happens in a musical, they're playing the, the theme before anything begins. And Michael Scott, one of the characters, is sitting next to uh, Daryl, another character who doesn't, by the way, particularly look like a musical theater nerd. But uh, Michael starts to talk to him uh, bef- uh, as the music is playing, and Daryl shushes him and says, shh. If we don't listen to the musical overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. And, and it's just, if you're a musical theater person, you know what he's talking about. But I think these phrasings in Daniel, these shifts in the spotlight to go, towards God's actions are kind of like the overtures in a musical. So if we gloss over them very quickly, we might not pick up on the hints the author is giving and miss the theological point. Because I think that Daniel is less a manual on how to get what you want, like be faithful to God and he will deliver you or he'll give you or he'll protect you. And is more a testimony to God ultimately being in control and faithful to us. Because the author reminds us that it's like, nope, it's not Nebuchadnezzar that took Jerusalem. God let him take Jerusalem. And it's not that Daniel just has this really cool skill to interpret dreams it's that God is the one who is, all, has, is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. So and I think, you know, we probably would acknowledge that that sort of transactional type of relationship, like do X for God and he'll do Y for you, like sort of quid pro quo, whatever, isn't how the Bible works or what the Bible is like trying to tell us. Um, like that doesn't just sound like good theology. Like you don't have to go to seminary, you know, that's like, eh, that doesn't sound right. 
And yet, like how quickly we slip into that type of thinking, right? Like very quickly um, without even noticing it. And I think that's part of that, like not to knock Sunday school because I love Sunday school, but it's part of that sort of like, let's find the Sunday school answer as quickly as possible. Like hurry, let's find the moral, um, moral of the story. And I think... I think that is, it tends to happen, especially in the Old Testament, right? Because it's like the stories are weird. They're narratives. Like they're, they're strange. Like I don't know what to do with it. Like just find a moral ASAP. Um, so I think it's also helpful to consider like when these stories were written, uh, similar to the story setting of the Babylonian exile, which we talked about, the people who first heard these stories and then compiled them into the book of Daniel that we have today were also living under foreign rulers, uh, but different ones at a later time. So they were in, under Persians and then later Greeks. Um, but they were, like the characters in the story, also struggling to maintain a sense of identity during this time. And it's in times like these, when you're, you're very far from home, from everything that's familiar to you, that you start to hold fast to the things that make you, you, right? Um, so for instance, for these people, their laws all of a sudden start to take on a new significance because they're having to practice them in a different setting, right? So the unique laws that God gave them in, on Sinai, the Torah, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are obeying like what law in this chapter? Well, it's the very first couple of laws in the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall have no other, God, no other gods before me. You'll not make any graven images. You shall not bow down and worship them. Like 101, right? Uh, and then, of course, Daniel, as we referred to earlier, refused, refused to eat the king's food right at the beginning because it would violate the laws. So the Jewish dietary laws. So food starts to matter. Like things that you kind of like, eh, like who really cares? Like when you're at home, it's like, eh, it doesn't really matter. But it's like when you're in a different setting, especially one that's sort of hostile to who you are as a person, you start to like take ownership of, of them. And languages start to matter as well, right? Uh, the book of Daniel is particularly interesting because it's written in two languages. It's actually one of uh, only two books in the Bible that's written in two different ones, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, and Aramaic was sort of the lingua franca, the common language at the time, like starting at this time, uh, people stopped, the people stopped to speak, stopped speaking Hebrew and began speaking Aramaic. Um, and yet it's included in this book as if to say, hey, no matter what the language of the dominant culture that you're in, we are first and foremost Hebrew speakers because this is the language of our religious heritage. So languages matter, laws and customs matter, food matters. And then the other thing that you start to do when your culture starts to diminish is you start to tell stories, right? You start to tell stories about your family, about where you came from, what you've been through, um, so that you don't forget who you are, right? So I'm going to tell a silly example from my own life, which will betray just how easy my life is. So, you know, just there you go. Uh, but I feel like it, it is part of my story. Uh, so my husband and I both lived in the South most of our lives. And when we graduated from college, we were married and we uprooted and moved to Boston for uh, grad school. And I, I'm not implying that Boston is Babylon. Okay. I know it's not. I loved Boston. It's a wonderful city. Uh, but I did, we felt a little bit like outsiders living there for a time. 
Um, for one thing, we were married really young. And so everybody was like, looked at us askance, like what? Oh yeah, you're from the South. That had people tell, that, tell it to me all the time. Um, that betrayed me more than any accent uh, was telling them that I was married at 23. Um, Christians were also very few and far between, or at least there were Christians in Boston. There are Christians in Boston, but it didn't have that like sort of veneer of Christianity that the South does, right? Um, And so like going to church, which, you know, in college was kind of like, eh, I can sleep in because I went to UGA. So it was like still in the South. It's like, eh, it's not that important. But like when I was in Boston, it was hugely important because it was like, it was like going home. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even care what denomination you are. You love Jesus. Yay. You're like, it really felt like family. Um, And then of course, probably the most important thing um, that we did in Boston that felt like home was when the Popeye's fried chicken opened at Fenway. Uh, and we were just, we just rejoiced because we made weekly pilgrimages there. Um, don't judge us too harshly because we were poor, but like, but also I'm a Louisiana girl as Tripp mentioned. And so like Popeye's is a real big deal to us. It's not just a chicken place. It's more of like a red beans and rice place. But every time I went there and ate the red beans and rice and like the buttery biscuits, I was like, ah, like it transported me home. Like food, it just has that, that effect on you. Um, so the food you eat, the customs you have, the laws you have, telling stories, all of these things, uh, from your past sort of like bring you home. And what we probably don't pick up on in this like first reading of Daniel three or any of Daniel is that the author of the book of Daniel is doing just that. He's starting to retell the foundational stories of Israel's past that would have made the original audience go, oh, like, this is familiar. Like, I've heard all this before. Um, so some examples of this is back in chapter two, like I said, when we talked about Daniel interpreting the dreams. Um, if you remember back to Genesis 41, so the story, this involves Joseph. We all remember Joseph, right? You know, technical, uh, technicolor dream code, another musical reference there. Um, so he's actually living in a foreign court himself. He's in Egypt under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is very similarly asking the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar does in Daniel, where he says, I have a dream. I know I need someone to interpret it. No one can interpret it except the Hebrew servant, Joseph. Uh, and then also strikingly, When Pharaoh asks, well, can you do it? Can you interpret the dream? He says, well, not I, but God is able to do it. Again, he shifts the spotlight to God, just like Daniel. And then he's rewarded in the same way as Daniel. He's put in charge of uh, uh, one of the provinces. Uh, And this would have immediately clicked with audiences. They would have been like, aha, I know this story. This has happened before. Um, The other important story, which is, absolutely crucial to the to Israel's identity is the story of the Exodus. Probably no other story is more uh, significant to the people of Israel than the Exodus. And the book of Daniel alludes to this story in a way that audiences who had these stories deep in their bones would have immediately recognized. So 
When Nebuchadnezzar sends the men into the furnace, the text says in verse 24, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up quickly and he says, was it not three men that we threw bound to the fire? I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. And later Nebuchadnezzar blesses their God who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. And this would have called to mind those who knew their, their Torah very well, their law, the line from Deuteronomy, uh, part of the Torah, Deuteronomy 4.20, where he says, but the Lord has taken you out of the iron smelter, aka furnace, out of Egypt to become a people of his very own possession as you are now. So deliverance, identity, it's all coming together. It's all sounding really familiar. And sub, the subtext for the audience here is, hey, remember when things looked like the absolute worst for your, for your ancestors, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they were in a furnace themselves of sorts and God heard their cry and he brought them out. So I think that one of the things that he's trying to say is, it doesn't, the oppressor's name may be different. It may be Pharaoh, it may be Nebuchadnezzar, it may be Antiochus Epiphanes, who's going to come up later in the book of Daniel, just a few chapters uh, later. And the land may be different. You may be in Egypt, you may be in Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. Um, but the one thing that remains the same is that God will deliver you because no matter where you are, you will always be his people. And he is always faithful to his people. So what's the effect of this? Especially for those of us sitting here today who thankfully aren't living under a foreign oppressor. And our foreign oppressors may take different forms, right? Well, for one thing, it reminds us that we're never called to step into any situation blind. So Sure, we may not know the outcome of whatever we're facing, but neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they weren't positive that they were going to make it out alive at all. In fact, as we read, they say, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, we're still not going to bow down, right? And this isn't an expression of doubt, they're surrendering their future to God because they know that trusting God is not just like a magic formula, right? You do X, he'll do Y for you. They know that the future is bigger than they are and they trusted that God was in control ultimately. So we don't know what may happen in whatever circumstance we're facing, but we know that we can trust. We can trust him because the story, we have the stories from our ancestors and if we're doing a good job, we're noting the stories of his faithfulness to us right now, currently, to us, to our families, and our own stories. And he never, that he never lets the oppressor have the final word. So again, as I said, our oppressors probably take different forms. Um, it might be a physical or a mental illness that just feels like it's threatening your well-being and your joy every day. It may be an insufferable work situation um, that just feels like it's sucking the life out of you. Uh, it might be watching a loved one constantly make 
bad decision after bad decision and you just feeling utterly powerless to help them even though you're praying for them. Um, And it makes you want to say like, how long, oh Lord? Like, will you forget me forever? It feels like you're forgetting me. Um, And by the way, it's okay to say that. That's actually from the Bible. It's from the Psalms. Again, another plug for the Old Testament. Read it. It's great. The psalmist says these very words and Psalms of Lament, which by the way, are the most of the common types of Psalms there are, the Psalms of Lament begin very, very raw and honest, just like that. Like how long, oh Lord? But they always end with that reminder of truth with, I will trust in you because I know that you always have the final word. You're not gonna leave me out to dry. So finally, another powerful illusion the author of Daniel makes is from the words of Isaiah. And these words probably are familiar to you. They're from chapter 43. Um, and we sing them in different songs here at Trinity. But it's, it's really interesting because some scholars think that this uh, chapter, these words from Isaiah 43, is a, a midrash or a, sort of a narrative interpretation of uh, Daniel, Daniel 3, this fiery furnace story. So this is, is really cool. So it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, again, identity. He knows you, he formed you. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Like the Exodus. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. And when we read these passages in Isaiah that talk about a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer, as Christians, of course, we're always thinking ahead towards Jesus, right? Uh, Our Emmanuel, literally our God with us, the incarnation, right? And Jesus, just like this angel or this one who had the appearance of a God uh, that shows up in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he enters into the most intense level of suffering with us. He doesn't save us from a safe distance, like trying to keep his hands clean, but he enters into the thick of it with us so that we're not alone. And I noticed today the colic um, for the week that we read earlier um, starts out with that, with this sort of idea, oh God, whose blessed son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Like this is what he came to do. He came in here to get get dirty, get his hands dirty as a human and with the intent of not letting the oppressor have the final word, destroy the works of the evil one. So this is the beauty of the incarnation, Right. He doesn't deny that we're going to have to pass through waters that feel like we're going to be drowning, that we're going to have to walk through fires, but we're not asked to walk through them in blind faith because we are his people and he is with us in the sufferings. So as we approach the season of Advent, which is, of course, as you know, is around the corner, the Halloween decorations are going away. We're putting away the cobwebs and like the wreaths are coming up on all the lampposts to my 11-year-old's dismay who really appreciates order and is like, wait, we haven't had Thanksgiving yet. But as you know, Advent is around the corner. And so we're starting to think about the incarnation, right? And so as we enter into that season, I would encourage you to start thinking about how we trust Jesus daily with our lives. 
And when he asks us to do hard things, which he will, that will require all of our courage to remember that he never asks us to approach them blindly and that God will always have the final word. If you're able, will you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.